Good morning. My name is Josh Hughes, and I'm one of the pastors of Four Oaks, and it's my privilege to open up God's Word for us this morning. But before we do that, I want to give you a quick update on something that's been going on uh, that's pretty significant for our church. And uh, if you've been around for any amount of time, you know that we've been going through a process uh, wherein the elders of the church have asked the members of the church to affirm some amendments to our bylaws. Uh, Most significant among those is a change to our statement of faith. Uh, We have left behind the old statement of faith that our church is united around for 25 years and adopted a new statement of faith. We know that's a really big deal. We spent the entire summer in a series considering what that new statement says, and uh, I am pleased to let you know that uh, the voting has closed for that. The results uh, are in, and uh, all items passed overwhelmingly. And so uh, as of earlier this week, our proposed bylaws and statement of faith have become our current bylaws and statement of faith. And that's a, that's a wonderful thing. We're encouraged. Thanks to all of you who voted and who participated uh, in that process. We were so encouraged by your participation over the last several months. And uh, as it pertains to the vote itself, one uh, area of particular encouragement to us was that of those who voted, 97% positively affirmed our new statement of faith. And that's just a real, that's a real grace to us as a leadership. So thank you, church, for listening for asking good questions, for seeking the Lord with us and walking uh, with us through this process over the last uh, few months. And if you're a member, you're going to receive an email update a little bit later this week that gives you some more information. But we did want to pass along that big picture update here this morning. Well, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and pull them out, power them up if it's on your phone or tablet or whatever, and turn to the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians We have set aside the fall and spring, a period of about nine months, to journey slowly through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And as Pastor Paul mentioned just a minute ago, we looked the last two weeks at verses 11 through 13, where the Apostle Paul really wrote to describe the great affliction he experienced in Asia and the subsequent comfort that he received from God in the midst of that affliction. If you missed either one of those messages, head over to fourhawkschurch.com and grab them. I think it will be an encouragement to your soul, particularly if you're in need of some comfort. And we are moving on to the next section of this book, and something really significant is happening in this section. Paul is uh, really making a turn to address one of his dominant purposes in writing this letter, beginning in verse 12. And uh, we want to consider it together. And so if you're willing and able, I want to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word as we give it our attention. We'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Three verses will occupy our attention this morning. Let's consider them together. The Apostle Paul writes, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. And supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. And I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. And as we look to the turning of the season, as summer gives way to autumn, and we look to a time when the leaves will begin to fall and the colors around us will begin to change. We're reminded of this, this eternal truth, and that's this. The grass withers, 
The flower fades, but not the Word of God. The Word of God endures forever. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that you did not leave us in our longing and in our darkness, but you came to us, you revealed yourself to us, not only by taking on flesh, but by speaking to us in a book, by giving us your inspired word so that we might know you. Lord, we have an opportunity in this place, in these moments together to be shaped by your word, and we want all that you have for us this morning. And in order for that to take place, we need your Spirit's help. Come, give us the gift of illumination. Holy Spirit, take from Jesus and give to us so that we might know you and be transformed a few more degrees into your likeness. We love you, and we come under your word now with with expectant hearts to receive it. We receive it with the open hands of faith. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. The first movie I ever saw in the theater was Back to the Future Part 3. It was 1990. It was a great year. I was 10 years old. And my dad took my sister and I to the theater uh, to see this movie. And I loved it, man. It was, it was just an awesome experience. I loved everything about this movie. At least I should say I loved all the parts I understood. Okay, And I didn't understand the whole thing. And that's not because I was slow. I don't, I don't think anyway. Uh, there was, there was a problem that I had in going to see this movie, and that problem was this. I hadn't seen Back to the Future Part 1 or Part 2, which, thanks a lot, Dad, for that. That was great planning on your part. Um, I'm not bitter about it, though. That's okay. So I could enjoy the story for what it was. I could enjoy Marty McFly and, and traveling back to 1885 and gigawatts and flux capacitors and all that. I could enjoy that to an extent, but there was a limit to my ability to understand everything that was going on, because I didn't have the backstory. And the reason I bring this up is, is this. If you come to the book of 2 Corinthians and just give it a cold reading, it can be a little bit like going to see Back to the Future Part 3. You're missing a significant part of the backstory. There's something really remarkable about this letter. It is the most personal that we ever see the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. He is so very emotional, so very human. It's like he's bleeding on the page. And to understand why that is, to understand all the, all, the, all the emotion and all the intensity that's going into this letter, we have to understand the backstory that exists between Paul and the church in Corinth. And so I want us to take a couple of minutes to explain how we got to a place where Paul was sitting down to write this letter to this church. If you remember in Acts 18, we saw that the Apostle Paul planted this church in Corinth over the course of about 18 months. And then he left the church, having established it to continue his traveling ministry. And about three years later, he wrote to them the letter that we have and know as 1 Corinthians. And he wrote to encourage them to address some errors in their doctrine and in their practice. And at the end of that letter, uh, in the final uh, chapters, he mentions that he has made plans to come and spend an extended visit with them, even uh, spending a winter with them. Uh, The winter was a time when he wouldn't travel, so he was going to hunker down with them for a while. And in the interim, between uh, his writing this letter and him coming to visit them, he sends Timothy, his assistant, to make a visit on his behalf. And what Timothy encounters when he gets to Corinth is very alarming. And he goes back and he reports to Paul that there is a burgeoning crisis of apostasy in this church. There is a, a turning away from the faith and a turning away from the Lord. And so Paul, alarmed by this changes his plans, and hurries down 
to Corinth, and he makes what he's going to refer to in chapter 2 as a painful visit. When he arrives, he experiences significant attacks, both on his, uh, on his ministry and on his personal integrity. There's, these, there's this group of opponents of Paul who have gained influence in the church and are beginning to stir up division against him. They're taking his experience of ministry uh, into evidence to indict his apostleship and his personal integrity. They're asking questions to the church in Corinth about Paul like this. If Paul's legit, then why does he seem to be suffering so much? Surely God's favor can't be on a man who's, who's suffering in this way. God's not prospering him. If God is really directing Paul's steps, then why do his plans seem to be changing all the time? Why doesn't he take any money for his labors? Surely he has some sort of ulterior motive, some hidden agenda that he's looking to push on us. Why is he so unimpressive personally when he's with us? If God's favor was really on him, wouldn't he be able to speak with greater power than he does? Paul experiences these attacks on his integrity, on his ministry, on his apostleship, and he limps away from that visit, and he follows it up with what he's going to call in chapter 2 a severe letter that's delivered to the Corinthians by Titus. This is a letter we don't have in our New Testament. This is a letter that comes between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And from everything that we can piece together by reading the other writings of Paul, it seems very clear that Paul absolutely goes scorched earth on the Corinthians in this letter, boldly rebuking them for their sin and boldly calling them to repentance and true faith. And as a result of this letter, by God's grace, that begins to happen. The church begins to repent and turn. There is growth. There is, uh, there is health beginning to form in the church. But this faction who opposes Paul is still in the church, and they continue to sow division among the saints. And so Paul sits down, and he pens this letter in about A.D. 55 to continue to correct the misunderstandings about him, to answer the charges that his critics continue to bring against him, and ultimately to preserve this church. And so to accomplish that purpose, he begins doing something in verse 12 that at first glance seems a little bit counterintuitive to us. He begins to boast. And boasting is something that Paul is going to do over and over again in this letter. In fact, the word group for boast uh, boasting, it occurs 52 times in Paul's writing in the New Testament. And of those 52, 41 of them occur in First and Second Corinthians. And 29 of them occur in Second Corinthians alone. Paul's going to do some serious boasting in this letter. And that's pretty brilliant on Paul's part because Corinth as a city was all about boasting. Corinth was a city that was characterized by materialism, pride, and opportunism. The people who went to Corinth, went there to become somebody. Uh, travel and tourism and debauchery marked life in Corinth. Uh, it's said that Nero loved to, to travel to Corinth and to go there to enjoy what one commentator I read called the adulation of its voluptuous populace. Now, now I don't know what that means. I went to Christian school. <laughs> but it does not sound very holy. And Corinth loved to boast. They loved to boast in rhetoric, in, in human brilliance, in eloquence, in, in, in uh, letters of commendation. They loved to boast. And being the wise cultural analyst and missionary that he was, Paul flips the script on them and does a little bit of boasting of his own. 
But here's the thing. Paul doesn't boast like the Corinthians do. He doesn't boast like the world does. No, no. In order to win back the church that he loves, to encourage them in their faith, to answer his critics, and to preserve this community who is in danger, whom he loves, Paul does a little bit of what I'm going to call humble boasting. Humble boasting. And it's important that we don't confuse this with humble bragging. You know what humble brag is? You know what a humble brag is? Uh, It's a thing that happens a lot on social media. It's when you uh, say something that on the surface makes you look weak or bad or less than, but really what it is is just a thinly veiled way to brag about yourself. It's boasting disguised as humility. It's fake humility for ego's sake. Here's a couple of examples of what humble bragging looks like, which is so common in our culture. This is from, uh, from Twitter. Olivia Munn, who's an actress, uh, tweeted this recently. Why can't I look cool when I meet Tom Hanks and he hands me his Emmy? Instead, I get so excited that I end up looking like a goober. You see, self-deprecating, but really it's like, hey, look at me, I get to hang out with Tom Hanks. Here's, a, here's my favorite example. Lance Armstrong, the famous or I guess infamous now cyclist, he put this on Twitter. Remind me not to stay out till 2 a.m. with Kid Rock again. Hurting for certain today. You see it? Humble brag is the disingenuous use of humility to exalt self. That's not what Paul's doing. Humble boasting is the sincere use of humility to serve others in a way that exalts God. Paul humbly boasts. And I want us to see this morning three things about his boast. First, I want us to see his clear conscience. Second, his sincerity toward others. And third, we want us to see that this is all by the grace of God. This is the way in which Paul can humbly boast and make his defense before the Corinthian church. First point, Paul humbly boasts in his clear conscience. Conscience is so significant in this text and in Paul's ministry. The conscience is our moral compass. It's our inner righteousness radar. It's our soul's self-commentary. It's that God-given inner voice that, that warns us when we're tempted to do things we know we shouldn't do. It's the voice of guilt speaking words of condemnation against us when we do bad things we know we shouldn't do. Conscience is also the highest human court that exists. Did you know that? Your conscience speaks with greater authority than any other human court there is, even higher than the U.S. Supreme Court. Here's what I mean when I say this. You can stand accused of wrongdoing before a human court, and you can know that you are guilty. And the judge can bang the gavel and for some reason say, you are found not guilty, you are free to go. The court has declared you to be not guilty, but you know what? Your conscience knows better, doesn't it? And the conscience will not exonerate you in your guilt. And in the same way, you can be wrongly convicted of something you haven't done, like Andy Dufresne and the Shawshank Redemption. They can send you to jail. They can pronounce you guilty. But your conscience can still say no. Your conscience can exonerate you. And that may seem like small comfort, but I want to tell you something. That matters. And it sure mattered to the Apostle Paul. It would be very difficult to overstate just how important conscience was to Paul. Let me show you just a few examples. In his defense before the Roman council in Acts 
chapter 23, it says, And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Romans 9, chapter 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, Paul writes to Timothy, The aim of our charge, the target we're shooting for, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul is deadly serious about the conscience and having a clear conscience. And we should be as well, because the conscience isn't just something that God gives us and then we run the rest of our life with the conscience that he's installed. No, we shape our conscience. We tune it with how we live our lives. You can think of it this way. The conscience has two processors in it. One is the factory-installed processor, and the other is the user-customized processor. So the factory-installed one is given to us at birth. Romans 2 says that God has written his law upon our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3 says that God has put eternity into the hearts of man. And so we see every person has some sense, however vague or darkened it might be, that he's accountable for his actions, whether good or evil. And that is a gift from God. It's, have you ever seen a, a toddler who hits or bites or, or steals a toy and he, 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 he crumbles, he cries, he knows that he's done wrong, even if he hasn't been caught, even if he can't explain why he's crying? That's the activated conscience, the factory-installed conscience that God gives to every person. But there's also a user-customized processor to our conscience. We are constantly making adjustments, tuning and training our consciences by what we do and by what our hearts and our minds consume. Our consciences are shaped by the life that we live and the moral standards that we embrace. And so positively, when we humble ourselves under God's Word, when we give it its due consideration and seek to live our lives in glad submission to what it teaches, we train our consciences to be more sensitive to sin and temptation. And we train our consciences to serve us better. But the opposite is also true. We can do damage to our conscience by ignoring it, by pushing past its warnings. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul uses an image that I think is just so powerful. He speaks about a seared conscience. And we know, we know what that image reflects, right? If you want to cook a steak, I believe, you know what, I'm not going to say that. I know the best method for doing so, cast iron skillet on the stovetop, nice and hot. Can I get an amen? There, there's a few of you who know. It would have been more, if you want to talk more about steak, come see me afterward. Here's what happens. You get the pan really hot, you throw the steak on it. If it's an inch, inch and a half thick, you do two minutes aside, you're good to go. And what you do is you sear the outside edge of the steak. It, it burns it in such a way uh, and, and cooks it perfectly so that it keeps too much heat from going in, which leads to the ultimate catastrophe, which is an overcooked steak. And it keeps the, the good stuff inside, the juice and the tenderness and the flavor, it keeps it from getting out. And we sear our consciences like a nice piece of meat when we ignore its warnings and when we push it up against the heat of sin and temptation. And here's the thing. The less we listen to our conscience, the more deeply it becomes seared and the more quietly it speaks. Our behavior, the things that we put into our minds, the way we respond to the warnings of our conscience 
adjusts the ways in which it serves us and speaks to us. And so it kind of turns out that Jiminy Cricket was a pretty good theologian when he said, take the straight and narrow path, and if you start to slide, give a little whistle. And always let your what? Let your conscience be your guide. A better, uh, maybe a better, more serious example of this is in the life of Martin Luther. Luther was the great reformer. He spent years speaking, teaching, and writing against the unbiblical teachings of the Catholic Church. And in that day, in the 16th century, that was absolutely not done. And for his boldness, uh, he was excommunicated by the church. He was denounced as a heretic, and he was called before the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V at the Diet of Worms in 1521. And it was demanded in no uncertain terms, that Luther was to denounce his teachings. He was to recant his testimony in the things that he had written and spoken. So they asked him to respond to this demand, and here's what he said. He said, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. He doesn't merely point to what the Word of God teaches. He points to his conscience. And where did he get this idea that you don't go against your conscience, that a clean conscience is so critical for us in our Christian life? Well, I think he got it from the Apostle Paul. The picture Paul is is painting in his text is that he has taken his opponent's charges before the court of his conscience and the deceitful verdicts of their lower courts have been overturned by the higher court of his conscience. The lower court said he's guilty. The higher court said no. Paul's tuned, awakened, enlightened, scripturally shaped and formed conscience exonerated him. What did his conscience say was the truth? We see it in verse 12. It says, we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. That's his defense. My conscience says I've acted not in the way that these people say I've acted, but instead I've behaved with simplicity and godly sincerity. Let's look at this phrase just briefly. Let's take each of these words. First, the word simplicity. Some of your translations will say, instead of simplicity, they'll say the word holiness. And there's some debate on uh, what this word actually is in the original Greek. The Greek word hagiotes, which is translated as holiness, and the Greek word haplotes, which is translated as simplicity, they look very similar on the page. And some of the ancient manuscripts say hagiotes, and some of the ancient manuscripts say haplotes. Uh, Both readings are fairly well attested in the ancient manuscripts that we have. But here's the important thing that I really want us to see. The text means the same thing in either case, whichever one is right. So if Paul means to say simplicity, which for what it's worth, that's the reading I prefer, he means frankness. He means the, there's, there's an absence of complexity in his behavior. It's behavior that's free of hidden motives and concealed desires. He's saying, I'm Paul, and you know me. You know the real me. I live with you in a way that's open and earnest and honest. And with me, what you see is what you get. And if he means to say holiness, he means essentially the same thing. I've walked before you in moral purity and uprightness. Corinthians, you know my character. You know my tested integrity among you. In either case, he's making the same argument. But not only that, 
Paul also says, I walked before you in godly sincerity. And this is an awesome word. Uh, The Greek word for for sincerity here is elekroneia, which refers to something that's examined by the light of the sun and found to be pure. So it's tested by the sun and found to be pure. So if you were in the market uh, in the first century and you needed to buy uh, some pottery, you might encounter a shiftless uh, potter who's dishonest, uh, a man whose, whose wares had cracked in the firing process, but because he's dishonest, he would fill it in with some wax. He'd fill in cracks and holes with wax. And so as you're standing there looking at this pot, considering whether or not you want to buy it, you're probably standing under a shade of an awning of some sort, and it'd be hard to see if there were cracks, if there were defects in the pot. And so what you would do is you would take it and you would walk outside and you would hold it up to the sun's light so that if there were any defects in it, they would become clear when that piece of pottery was tested by the light of the sun. Uh, The folk etymology of our English word sincere is that it comes from the Latin word sin and sera, which means without wax. Paul's saying, hold me up to the light. I'm not harboring secret sin. I'm not walking in hidden immorality. I am sincere before you. There's nothing hidden in me. And my conscience testifies that these things are true. How about you? What does your conscience say? Does it testify that you're walking in this sort of sincerity? Is there a disconnect between who you say you are and who your bank statement says you are? Is there a disconnect between who you say you are and who your browser history says you are? Paul's saying there is no difference. I am who I present myself to be. My conscience bears witness to it. Now, Paul boasted in his clear conscience, but he knew that his conscience is not the ultimate court of appeal. Though it is the highest human court, it is not the ultimate court. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Paul's saying, our consciences are not infallible. It is the highest human court, but Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is the ultimate judge. But for Paul, as much as it depended upon him, he could humbly boast in his clear conscience. The second thing I want us to see about Paul's humble boast is that he humbly boasts in his sincerity toward others. At the end of verse 12, Paul says that we've behaved in these ways. Simplicity and godly sincerity has characterized our lives, and supremely so toward you. Paul walked in integrity, particularly in his actions toward the church in Corinth. He wasn't acting duplicitously toward them, as some were accusing him of doing. He said and wrote all of those painful things that he said and wrote for the sake of serving this church. He didn't do it for the sake of his own ego or to satisfy some frustration with them or out of a desire to bolster his own standing. He did it for the glory of Jesus in this church. Paul's saying, what I want you to see is that I acted out of love for you, Corinth. Man, as we continue this letter, we're just going to see how much Paul loved the Corinthian church. 
Let me just give you a couple of examples of what he goes on to say later. Chapter 1, verses 23 and 24. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming to Corinth again. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. He's saying, when I sent you that severe letter rather than coming again in person, I did that to spare you. I was working for your joy and your progress in the faith. Chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Do you hear the, do you hear the angst in Paul's tone as he's writing these words? He's saying, it hurt me deeply. I, did not want to, I didn't want to hurt you and wound you in this way, but I did it because I love you. Chapter 6, verse 11. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. Paul loved these people, and he loved them enough to confront them in their sin because love speaks the truth, and it's willing to be harsh at times for the good of others, isn't it? Parents know this. Is it easy to discipline your children? No. Not at all, but we do it because we love them. Is it easy to confront a friend who's walking down a path toward destruction and sin, embracing false ideas, turning away from obedience to Christ? Is it easy to confront that person? No, it's not easy to do that at all. But just like love cries out when your toddler is running toward the street, love pulls the fire alarm when the beloved is about to shipwreck their faith. On the rocks of sin. Love doesn't turn a blind eye when the beloved is walking toward danger. And Paul was unwilling to turn a blind eye to the danger that the Corinthians were facing because of their apostasy. And so he acted. He acted in sincerity and love. One of the particular charges they bring against him is that he writes, uh, he writes with duplicity, that he's concealing his true intentions that he's manipulating people by saying one thing when he really means something else. And that's what he's addressing in verses 13 and 14, where he says, For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. And I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast in you. What he means is, the things that I've written, the things that I've said to you, I am being completely straight with you. I'm being utterly sincere. Corinthians, you have, you have more to learn. There is more of God's truth that the Holy Spirit needs to unfold and make known for you, but my only desire is that you would see it. There's no duplicity behind my words. And he says, I believe you're going to see it in the day of Jesus Christ. And on that day, you and I will boast in one another. Paul could humbly boast because his conscience testified that he had acted in sincere love toward the Corinthians. And our third point, Paul humbly boasts in these things only by the grace of God. This is so critical. We cannot boast like Paul did if we miss this. What's the source of Paul's clear conscience? What's the source of Paul being able to say, I behaved with simplicity and godly sincerity before you? Where does that come from? Does it come from Paul's sufficiency? Does it come from his own competence? No. 
It's only by the grace of God. This is so very important. How is it that you can boast? And instead of being proud in your boast, be humble. How is that possible? Here's how. Boast in the merits of somebody who isn't you. Listen, it's not pride for you to say that you are deeply loved and fully accepted by God. It is not pride for you to say God delights in you. That's not a proud thing to say. Do you know why that is? Because it's got nothing to do with anything that you've done. It's got nothing to do with your deserving. And it's got everything to do with Jesus Christ and what he's done and how deserving he is. And so to boast in the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, that's not pride. That's humility. The reason Paul can defend himself, the reason Paul can stand before them and say, I have a clear conscience before you, the reason he can say, I behaved in simplicity and godly sincerity toward you, the reason he could confront them in their sin, not sparing them from the hard truths they needed to hear, is because his confidence is fully in the grace of God and not in earthly wisdom. That's what he says in Philippians 3, isn't it? It's whatever gain I had, my pedigree, my extreme learning, my zeal for righteousness, my blamelessness under the law, I counted it all as garbage for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Earthly wisdom is what Corinth was all about. Earthly wisdom says, I've pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I've earned my position. Everything I've got, I worked my tail off to get it. I'm competent. I've got what's needed. How dare you make these these accusations against me? Don't you know I'm Paul? That's proud boasting. That's earthly wisdom. The grace of God says something completely different. The grace of God says, I am a sinner who desperately needs Jesus. And because I have Jesus... I'm not afraid to be known for exactly who I am. Nothing more and nothing less. I don't have to posture and pretend to be something that I'm not. And I don't have to deny the things that I am because everything I have and everything I am, if there's any good in me, I owe it all to the grace of God. Guys, understand, Paul knew exactly who he was and he knew exactly why he was an apostle. It was not because of anything he had done. It was because Jesus Christ literally knocked him off his donkey on the Damascus road, revealed himself to him, gave him a new heart, called him to the ministry of apostleship. And out of sheer grace, he set his affection and his love upon him. And so Paul boasts in that. And what Jesus did for him, that's why Paul can say, I have a clear conscience by the grace of God. You remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector that Jesus told in Luke chapter 18? Earthly wisdom is what the Pharisee says. And the grace of God is what the tax collector says. Earthly wisdom says with the Pharisee, God, I thank you I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But that's not what the tax collector said. The tax collector, who understood the grace of God in that moment, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but instead beat his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
tax collector understood what the Apostle Paul understood, which is that you cannot move the heart of God to set his love on you by the good things that you do. No. God's holiness demands perfect obedience that you and I fall short of daily. But you know what will move the heart of God? Desperation. Humility. Helplessness. An acknowledgement that He is your only hope. We've been singing this song a lot recently, Come Ye Sinners, and I love that line that says, All the fitness He requires is to feel your need of Him. Don't dream for one second that you can make yourself fit for God by your good deeds. It will never happen. It cannot be done. The fitness he requires is to know you are desperate for his help, that you have no hope apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. So let's be done with boasting in earthly wisdom, church. Let's be done with boasting in our strength, our competency, our human wisdom, and let us be a church who boasts in God's grace toward us in Jesus Christ. Amen? Jeremiah said it this way in in Jeremiah chapter 9. I love this text. Verse 23, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Paul said it much more succinctly and simply in 1 Corinthians 10, 17. He said, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is so valuable. This is the key to humble boasting. It's understanding how dependent you are on the grace of God that's been given to you in Jesus Christ. And when you get that, when this awareness causes you to live in such a way that you can say with a clear conscience before him, I have behaved righteously, and it's all by the grace of God. That is a precious gift of grace. Jonathan Edwards knew something about this on July 1st, 1750. Edwards, who was the most important pastor and theologian the U.S. has ever had, one of the great catalysts of the Great Awakening, stepped into the pulpit of First Congregational Church in Northampton, Massachusetts, to deliver his farewell sermon. After 23 years of pastoring that church, he had been, uh, just a few days later, unceremoniously ousted by a congregational vote of 23 votes for him and 230 against him. And so Edwards opened up his Bible to this text. He opened his Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14. He read the text, and then he said these words to the people who had just told him, thank you very much, it's time for you to move on down the road. Here's what he said. I have spent the prime of my life and strength in labors for your eternal welfare. You are my witnesses that what strength I have had, I have not neglected in idleness, nor laid out in prosecuting worldly schemes and managing temporal affairs for the advancement of my outward estate and aggrandizing myself and family. But I have given myself to the work of the ministry, laboring in it night and day, rising early and applying myself to this great business to which Christ appointed me. I have found the work of the ministry among you to be a great work indeed, a work of exceeding care, labor, and difficulty. Many have been the heavy burdens that I have borne in it, to which my strength has been very unequal. 
God has called me to bear these burdens, and I bless his name that he has so supported me as to keep me from sinking under them, and that his power herein has been manifested in my weakness. But now I have reason to think my work is finished, which I had to do as your minister. You have publicly rejected me, and my opportunities cease. That's some humble boasting in the grace of God, isn't it? Certainly Edwards was devastated, but where did he go for comfort on that dark day? To his clear conscience. Maybe some of you find yourself in a situation similar to Edwards today. Maybe your, your marriage has been ravaged by sin. It feels impossible to fix, and you're, you're, you feel like the things that you're doing, you can't tell if they're helping or hurting. You're playing the what-if game every day. Here's the encouragement of this text to you. Commit each action and each word to the Lord. Look to the Scriptures. Ask Him to give you wisdom and guidance and ask Him to give you something else. Ask Him to give you a clear conscience. And then lean on your conscience, believing that you did all that you could and that God will honor your sincere desire to please Him. Maybe you're experiencing some other form of relational stress. Maybe there's Maybe you've been wronged by someone and a ton of water has now passed under that bridge and you feel compelled to, to reach out, but you don't even know where to start. Here's a great place to start. Start by searching your conscience before the Lord. Lord, how would you have me go and reach out to this person? And then entrust yourself to the God who judges justly. And as you do, trust that he sees and cares for you and that he is going to one day reveal all things. Edwards knew this. He closed his sermon with these words. Then every step of the conduct of each of us in this affair, from the first to the last, and the spirit we have exercised in all, shall be examined and manifested. And our own consciences shall speak plain and loud. And each of us shall be convinced, and the world shall know. And never shall there be any more mistake, misrepresentation, or misapprehension of the affair to eternity. Edwards is absolutely Right, and there's great encouragement and comfort for us in his words. You've got to remember, there was no earthly deliverance for Edwards. He still got fired, right? But Edwards knew, and we can know, that there is a day coming when there will be an accounting. All things will be examined in the shining light of the glory of Jesus Christ. And the world shall know the truth. And while we wait for that day, that we will stand before Jesus Christ. May we, each one of us, be able to humbly boast with the Apostle Paul that the testimony of our conscience is simplicity and godly sincerity in our conduct, all by the grace of God. So how do we do that? How do we cultivate a clean conscience before the Lord? Let me give you three ways briefly. Instruct, respond, and renew. First, instruct your conscience. Instruct it with the Word of God. When the, when the Scriptures begin to take root in our hearts, when the Holy Spirit illuminates our understanding of, God, of what God has revealed to us in His Word, it begins to shape and form our consciences to better align with God's desires for us. So train your conscience with consistent study of the Word of God. Second, respond to your conscience. Be sensitive to it. Resist temptation. Don't push past the boundaries of your conscience. Train yourself to listen more attentively 
to what it tells you so that you might protect it and continue to cultivate it. So instruct, respond, and finally, renew. Let the gospel do its work in your conscience day by day. Be ready to confess your sin. Acknowledge the reality that you are broken. You know, God has done some of his best work in my life when I finally had the grace and the humility to acknowledge and name my sin to other people. Be specific with people. Ask them to help you by prayer as we saw last week. Shine the light of God's truth upon your sin. And then finally, proclaim the gospel to yourself. When guilt and condemnation press in, remind yourself that if you're in Christ, you are fully and freely forgiven. And when your conscience condemns you, fly to the grace that's been poured out on you through Jesus Christ, knowing that he loves you. One of the best ways that we do that is every week we come to this table. When we come to the Lord's table, we are entering again by faith into the drama, into the mystery of faith, of Christ's redemptive work in our lives. We proclaim Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. What I want us to do as we prepare our hearts to come is to take a moment and search our consciences. Ask the Lord to do his work in us. Maybe that's, re- maybe that's revealing sin. Maybe that's responding to the, to, the, to, the, to the voice of your conscience today, listening to the things that it's been telling you and encouraging you to do. As we prepare to come to this table and as our elders and leaders come and prepare to serve, take a moment silently and search your conscience before the Lord.